I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Carolyn Fay is a trilingual actress, award-winning singer-songwriter lyricist, and Tarragon artist-in-residence and assistant director for Paint Me This House of Love at Tarragon Theatre. She joined me to talk about Paint Me This House of Love, available as a fully realized digital production as part of Tarragon Chez Vous until May 31st. In this conversation, we talk about her playwriting journey, what it was like to be an assistant director on the play, how her residency in Tarragon came about, her time on Blue's Clues, and much more. Here's our conversation. Are you, is your, you have something that's happening, a play of yours in Montreal, Go Fish. Has that happened yet or is that about to happen? It's a read. It will happen May 11th. Oh, awesome. Yeah. But it's just a read of Act One. It's a two act. Just that, okay. Yeah. Tarragon's developing it. Mm-hmm. But w- during the process of me writing it, the theater company in Montreal, Tease Redunia, um, help they help yeah. they embraced me with their with a, i think a four month residency online thank goodness <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well that certainly enables you to do both things the the playwriting unit at tarragon and the residency that's awesome it's great it's awesome yeah, yeah. Um, but before we get into that uh we should uh talk about pay me this house of love which is really the reason uh, why we're here today um, yes. Now, by the time this airs, the show itself will be closed, but there's a digital production that people will be able to watch. So I want to make sure that we get that out of, the, out of the way. But the important thing is, could you tell me about Paint Me This House of Love? Okay. For those who will not have seen it by the time this episode airs, I'm not going to give spoilers, but imagine, if you will... 25-year-old woman who, who's been abandoned by, his, by her father. She grew up with her mother, um, and all of a sudden her father shows up. And in this house of reunion, there's been lies. Like in any family, there's, there, there are lies, there are skeletons in the closet. But what happens when when you when as the woman you're you imagine how your father was um you get information from your mother as to who your father was and will he come back or not so all this thing these things that are playing in the woman's mind what is real what's a lie how to reconcile and move on with life hmm without giving spoilers <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, as far as your involvement in this show, you have been uh, the the assistant director on the yes. show. Yes. Um, well, I, let me start with basics. Like, as far as like, if somebody is like, I don't actually know what an assistant director does. What does an assistant director do? Um, 
that's similar to what a stage manager does during the rehearsal process. Take notes. Remember what the director says, requests of the actors. Uh, remember some of the, the, the blocking, if you will. Also assist the actors with their lines, uh, especially with Paint Me This House of Love. The, the lines are very difficult because Chelsea Woolley, the way she wrote uh, the communication between the daughter and the father, it's, there's, um, how do I say, a familiarity between the two characters. Uh, for instance, uh, you live with your partner and it's been years you've, living, you've been living with them. You're at the kitchen table for breakfast. Instead of saying, uh, pass me the sugar for my coffee, you just say, pass me. And your partner automatically understands. So it's a similar kind of language, but for technically for the actors, it was difficult to memorize because they have to understand what the other character is saying. Right. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of repetition. Um, the actors had to memorize each other other's lines so they can just Give it a smooth flow. Um, now, have you have you as directing been a thing that you've done before? Is this a new experience for you? Ah, this is a coming back to it. Uh, back in Montreal, I had my own theater company, Altera Vite Productions. Um, it was short lived. I had fall four full on productions, uh, so I directed two out of the four, um, and then. It was a time where I wasn't getting any grants. You know the story. No grants, money out of my pocket. Um, I was blessed with a good job to be able to afford full four full productions. Um, but then I thought I can't, I can't do it all. And I went on to enjoy being a performer. So right. Mike, with Mike Payette asking me, you know, come on over, let's. Let's do this together. It was, um, at first I was hesitant, but then I thought, why not? Let's see if, if that fire is still in me. Yeah. Uh, as by now, by the time the podcast is, uh, is going to be broadcasted, the show, my, my job's, my job's done. And yeah. I'm still trying to figure out if the fire is still in me. Interrupting. Mm. Um, now, as far as like that, that like having Mike, like Mike approach you, were you already uh, part of the playwrights union at, unit at uh, at Tarragon? Did it come out of that, or did he approach you sort of like from the side, from a different angle, and and it was sort of a coincidence oh, that you were also? I'd like to clarify: it's yeah. artist in residence. Oh, artist in residence. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank there you. are four residencies, three of which are playwrights in residence, but my, my position is artist in residence. So yes, it did fall under the umbrella of, um, Mike basically gave me the keys to the house. You have an office, right. Uh, you want to eventually go see what the, uh, props department's doing? Go. You have the key. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Artist and resident, artist and resident actually gives you a lot more. Like it's 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 not constrained. Artist and resident is obviously a, a larger uh, uh, umbrella un, under yes. which to sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's quite interesting. It's quite motivating and quite inspiring. Um, what are we now? We're in May. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. yeah. We're still be we're beginning of May, and I already have four plays on the table. Wow, and more ideas are coming. So, that's the, always the, the interesting thing about writing. The interesting thing about writing is that is that you know it it it's a muscle, and so when you exercise it, it it feeds in. So you you have ideas, and because you have ideas, you have ideas, right? Yes, exactly. It just it it just goes on and on, and and to have a designated place to feel free. To do what you want artistically mm -hmm. is just, huh? It's a dream. It's a dream. 
Now, how did, how does that come about? How did you how did you find your way into the role as uh, as uh, as artist in residence at, at Tarragon Theater? Um, Mike Payette called me in. Um, we because Mike Payette and I we have history from Montreal. We know we know each other from Montreal. Um, and he came to Toronto when he got the job, and me, I made I moved mid pandemic. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't know. It's just, you know how it is. Paths separate, and then paths meet again. And yeah, I think this time our paths really met, and we're walking parallel. And I, I, what Mike is doing at Tarragon, adding diversity, um, reaching further, um, and challenging. Isn't that what theater is all about? To challenge the mind. Um, He's doing it. That's He's great. Doing it. Yeah. yeah. Now, for you, as 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 a as as a playwright, and I remember we talked relatively early in the pandemic, yes. and I remember um, you were you were starting to write, and I remember having a moment where I said, you know, about about calling yourself a playwright, and you were so reluctant to call yourself a playwright at that time. Tell me, do you feel like a playwright? Huh. <laughs> almost <laughs> almost almost i'm almost there only because um i it's you know my work is being developed that means it's under the umbrella of an official theater but if we're having coffee and cake right now phil no, no not yet Never will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Since since it's just you and me having coffee and cake, um, <laughs> I'm I'm curious because like I think we had uh, we had almost the same conversation in uh, 2020 or 2021, whenever it was, and you you were so reluctant to call yourself a playwright. And I'm I think I will ask you a question that I think I asked you then yeah. is for you, what do you think it 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 that you need to be able to 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 call yourself a playwright? I think, well, the fact that Tarragon has taken two of my plays and is is working it, developing it, I think that that in itself is a, a big step for me to call myself a playwright. Um, the fact that it's going to have a public reading in Montreal, that is another step. But all I am, Rick, is I'm I'm just telling stories. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I want. I mean, that's the most important thing. Is 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 that's all any of us do who write is we tell stories. Um, I think, you know, I think I'm, I might have said this before, but many years ago, um, I, you know, I was working my day job and I had a lot of trouble yeah. calling myself an artist. He would say, "What do you do?" And I would name my day job. That's what I would do. And a friend of mine heard me say that and was like, "But, but that's you know, you 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 do that, but that's not." That's not you. That's not you're an artist. You write. You perform. Why? Why do you never lead with that? Yeah. And I thought about it. it. Took me a long time to be able to to say I am a, I'm a, I'm a writer and performer, and that's how I introduce myself. But it was a there was like this psychological block that prevented me from from admitting to that. And I I feel like it was like what it it was just there was something in me that sort of like prevented me from from saying the words i am an artist i'm a performer i'm a writer and and it it took a lot of effort to just be able to to say those words but it was really freeing once i did right um on my end i can comfortably say i am a performer i feel at home on stage right saying other people's words uh wearing costumes and and i'm very comfortable with that as a writer or someone who tells stories, I'm not there yet because mm. there's this little thing in me. I think it's a matter of confidence, time, um, and even public acceptance. Sure. Of of you know, are my stories worth it? Will it resonate with someone? Should I care if it doesn't resonate with someone? <laughs> <laughs> um. But all I know right now is when I'm 
writing either longhand with my my obsessive fountain pens or <laughs> or typing at the computer all i know is i'm loving it i'm loving mm. writing yeah yeah i'm going to i'm going to as 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 somebody as sort of like a nerd about this sort of stuff i'm going to ask you um you you know sometimes you write with a fountain pen sometimes you you type at a computer is there something in particular like does it depend on the project how you how, what implement you use or are they part of or is is each a stage of the process um i start off handwriting that's for sure i take each play or each story i write has an assigned pen and i i have a notebook and i write longhand because i find that there's a automatic editing that goes on in my mind before the ink flows onto the paper hmm. and once i have uh, a big chunk of the story. Once I have an idea where the story's going, I retype everything onto the onto onto the computer, and sometimes I just keep going with the typing. Sometimes mm. I go back writing. Mm. What I find interesting about that for me, um, I used to type. I used to write exclusively by typing. But one of the things that I end, I found that I I ended up doing was. Uh, cutting a lot of what I wrote yeah, because I could type so fast that I would end up overwriting. Exactly. And when I write by hand, yeah, that doesn't happen. No. In fact, at times I underwrite, but that allows me as I'm editing to, to embellish, but not in the same way I did when I was, when I was typing it. In fact, like you're saying that when I'm typing it, I'm editing. Yeah. And so it, it, it's certainly a, a, a really, helpful way to do it but of course everybody has a different a different way of uh, of of writing um has it always been natural for you to to go for the fountain pen or did you did you one day pick up the fountain pen and was like this is my baby <laughs> i've always loved fountain pens i am um from from my school days that's when what i was learning how to write the old cursive way the nuns the nuns gave us fountain pens to write with. And as time went on, of course, the ballpoint happened. But um, when I finished high school, I went back to the fountain pen. There is something about them, isn't there? There's something. Yeah. I always I always like a really fine pen. Something about like feeling like I am etching the yes. words permanently into the piece of paper is yes. so satisfying. Yeah. There's that sound of that that scratchy sound of the oh, yeah. point of the nib yeah. on the paper when you write and and you really can't press down hard with a fountain pen right so there's that balance of keeping a light touch on the paper so that the ink will flow mm -hmm. everything it's almost like a dance it's a controlled movement but your brain is going 200 miles an hour and your hand can only go so fast so true so true yeah uh, but that that uh, that sort of reins you in a little bit yes that allows you to to slow down your writing a bit yes. um so that you know you're distilling the initial thought whereas when i'm typing man i apply oh, it just I, goes everywhere yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. um okay I, i'm really excited to to talk to you about about this play um, go yes. fish. That's 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 being having a reading of the first act in Montreal, but also is one of the ones that you've been working on. So please tell me about go fish. Go fish. You have this old woman. She's um, on the last day of her life. It's not sad. There's no. She has accepted the fact that today is her last day on earth. So I play around with the question, um, looking back in time. Instead of, what would you tell your younger self, I asked the question, what would your younger selves tell you? So on her last day, she imagines that she was 45, she was 50, 55, 60, and all these women come to her house to play a game of go fish. So all that... All these younger versions of herself are telling her what she should have listened to then. Hmm. What 
is, what drew you to this idea? I wrote it at a time when um, I was feeling, I was feeling very low. I was feeling ageism in our industry um, and I was seeing it and, you know, I was auditioning for roles that were age appropriate for me, mm. but not getting the roles and seeing who was getting the roles. And it was someone who would be 20 years my junior. Right. And I thought, this is not right. So I, I wanted to write something about elders, about older people. And what I find now is a pattern. Every time I put pen to paper, it's something about our elders, older people, seniors, um, because we, we, they have a story to tell too. I have a story mm. to tell as well. And we don't have enough of that out there. Our industry is geared so much to youth and bravo. Yes, youth has, youth have, have stories to tell, but us too. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, the industry has all, has often been very, I mean, it's this, this weird uh, combination of, of youth focused, but also on some level also, um, well, old white men focused. Um, so age, yes. In, in, in certain, not roles on stage, but in certain office area roles, yes. um, uh, holding the reins while young people do, the bulk of the performing on stage. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of this weird fact of, uh, of, of the way that, that our stages have worked for so long for in some ways. Yeah. And in some ways we're not because of that, we're not actually telling stories for each other. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, we see grandmas and grandpas on TV, and they're they're always projected as cutesy. Right. Well, we're not always cutesy. <laughs> not, we have the same angst and fear and insecurities as mm. as a thirty something, as a twenty something, a different version of it. But we we still feel we're still there. Yeah. Yeah. I will. I mean, I remember. I, in my 20s, this sort of started in my 20s when I was, I started to wonder, okay, at some point, the knowledge is going to come into me. The knowledge, the wisdom, it's it's going to come from above into me. Like I'm sure that it did my parents. I thought my parents knew things. I thought they were wise. And so I would wait through my 20s and be like, okay, the wisdom, the knowledge has not dropped from heaven into me yet. In my 30s, okay, the wisdom from heaven has not yet dropped into me. In my 40s, I was like, is this thing ever, what is going on? And suddenly I think I was about 45 when I was like, it doesn't happen. Everybody's just fucking making it up. Yes. Yes. And Phil, I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to be 62 this year. I still don't know. Still and this is, I think, know. this is, I think, the fact. And I think it's the thing that, 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 that you know, we need to, uh, we should talk about it more between yes. our, the, the generations. We don't know. We don't know. We really don't know. No. And it's. You know, we're all just, we're all trying to figure it out the best we can. You know, I just, you know, some of us have a few more years on others, but we still are not, we only have our experience to go on. Exactly. And, and our experience may be um, a variation on the theme of someone else's experience, but it's, it's ours to own. And that's the only thing we know that yeah. we could be sure of our own experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the uh, as far as like being a, a, a playwright or or working towards being, yes. a playwright, I will give you. I will give you that. Okay, um, okay. What is it that that as you as you know you mentioned always telling stories? You know you've always told stories, whether whether uh, through music or or through directing plays and things, but but. And, and I think you wrote stories, you wrote short stories before yes. uh, being, and poetry before sort of turning your eye towards theater. Yes. Has that been something you've done since you were, uh, since you were a child or is that something that, 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 that started later? And what was it that made you want to turn that to something that you created for the stage? Um, you just made me think back to my English teachers in high school. 
they were always saying, you have, you have this gift of writing stories, keep going, keep going. But then I'd write and I'd, I'd look at the stories I, I used to write and I'm thinking, no, not good, not good. And I, I stopped. Um, but I use, but as a performer, using other people's words and, and um, interpreting them on stage, and, I, and I'm always thinking, damn, how did they get these words? Where did they go to get these words? I think for my case, it's because I'm a late bloomer. Um, you know, my first play, you were there. We were talking about it. Right, yeah. Um, only then did I feel, now I have earned the right to tell my story. I mean, wh what was that? Right two, three years ago, pre-pandemic. Yeah, yeah. um, so I think for me, I needed to feel secure on my feet. I needed to feel I've had enough life experience so that when I make things up, I'm mm -hmm. kind of not making it up. Yeah. 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 You know, I remember, um, you know, I wrote when I was, when I was young, I wrote all the time. Um, but I, I always, you know, when you're young, Let's face it. I was a teenager and I was not very smart. And so I, uh, I always figured that, that, you know, I write it, that first draft, boom, done. And then, you know, later on, as you get a little older and you start to think a little critically, I would, I would write and then I would read back what I'd written. I'd be like, this is garbage. And I would throw it away uh -huh. um, because I had not yet learned that good writing comes through revision, right? You have yes. to- write it and then revise it um yes. it's so hard because uh, you know you th especially when you're young you think ah the most pure form of this story is the, is what comes initially through my pen but right. it's actually so unformed you have to learn how to put it all together properly right did you have a, a journey uh, uh like that with your writing um it was so I don't know if I did because the moment I put pen to paper or the moment I started typing these stories, obviously later, late, late, late in life, there was a certain confidence in the story I was going to tell. Um, so what's happening really is the editing I'm doing is more technical grammar, technical grammar that I, I'm, I'm checking up. Um, and in this, in, in a sense for Go Fish, where it's being developed with Tarragon, um, you know, the story is there. The dramaturge is saying, well, this is fine and would ask me challenging questions. And I find myself answering and the dramaturge is, yeah, okay, I can buy that. Or another technical move of take this scene, move it up and take that scene and move it down. But nothing, nothing to question the story itself. Mm. Mm. Mind you, if I was in my 20s right now, the, the, the story would be, um, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think it's because I'm later in life that, that once it's on, on the screen or on the paper, it's a little bit more solid. Fine. Now, you've been, you know, following you on, on on Facebook and other other media. I know that you've been, you've been sort of delving into horror a oh, little bit, yes, um, and not just watching horror. I think I think you've been like writing stuff, and and genre is something that yes. we don't touch very often in our theater world right now. There's a few companies like like uh, like Eldritch Theater, Eldritch, yes, to do. Um, what is it that's drawing you to genre writing and genre theater? Um, it's, there's a lot of reality theater out there. The, 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 the finding yourself theater, the, the challenge, the battle kind of theater, but the fantasy, fantasy theater seems to be relegated to, to youth, to, to kids, right? you know? Nothing for the adults, mm. uh, except for Eldritch Theater, of course. Yeah. I mean, oh, 
what Eric Wolf is doing, I personally think is brilliant. Absolutely. And I think we need more of that. Us adults were a little bit too serious in life that we could use a little fantasy. And that's why I'm attracted to the horror genre. Mm. And horror for me is not slasher. Yeah. Okay, I just want to get that clear. It's <laughs> it's psychological. It's it's um, our deepest, darkest fears. If it's a monster, let it be a monster. Uh, you know, the boogeyman under the bed, but adult style. And that's mm. very scary. And I think I, I even told um, Eric Wolf in one of our chats, I, I told him, people need to be scared out of their wits to see what reality is sometimes. That is what what the horror teaches us, though. The horror horror opens our eyes to the things that we're ignoring. Yes. Right? yes. So you know, the monster under the bed usually represents something that we're ignoring, especially yes. like literally the monster under the bed that we ignore. You know, it's like <laughs> yes. that thing or the monster in the closet. We, you know, what do we do? We, have, I'm afraid there's a monster in the closet. Well, I will just shut that door. Um, exactly. Exactly. You know, these metaphors are so powerful, and they're they're powerful enough to. And unnervous just a bit. Yeah. Yep. And we need that. We need, we get too comfortable, too quick, and we dig our ruts and we just stay there. Put something scary in the way, and then we jump out of the box. You know, that cliche saying, you know, think out of the box, uh, yeah. get uncomfortable, or get yourself scared. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I think that the, the and I do, I do think there's a resurgence of, of horror. I think that we, there are companies that are, that are really tackling it. Companies like Eldridge, um, they're, they're smaller companies because a lot of, a lot of theater, uh, larger theater companies are just not ready to go there. And yet, if you look back in the history of, uh, of theater, horror was very popular. Scaring people was very popular. You look at like the Victorian era where they had like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on stage and Dracula on stage. And these were plays that terrified the people in the audience. But they would sell out. Exactly. Exactly. Because I actually think that audiences, genre will bring people in, I think. You know, we ask ourselves all the time, where is our audience? Well, let's stop setting things in a living room. Let's just give us something to sink our teeth into. I think that, that audiences love and want and 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 can really be affected by genre storytelling and so things like horror things like fantasy things like sci-fi even yeah. when done right um really open things up and, exactly. and 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 give an audience something that that our our adherence to to quote unquote realism does not yes yes and it is you know basic marketing 101 you really want something different do a genre piece. Yeah. That's yeah. different. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, in addition to, to, to writing, you, you've done some translation. You, you translated yes. uh, uh, Crossy by Kyung Sung Min. Yes. Uh, 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 from English Korean to French Korean. And yes. uh, translation is, a, is different, is sort of like writing, but different. So tell me about the experience of of translating uh, a play. Wow. That was a complete brain buster in a good sense. Um, because the way Chun So Min writes, like the words on paper, it is beautiful physically to the eye. The Her phrasing, the way she writes the words, it's almost like um, calligraphy. So... Already I'm taken in, but then I have to remember I am here to translate. I am I'm not here to to appreciate or to to fall in love with. I need to be business about this. I need to translate the words. So in keeping with the Asian aspect of her writing style, um you know, from English and her Korean, um and then bringing it to French, where, I mean, 
Korea was occupied by the Japanese and it was a, a horrible story with a good ending. It was, it's also a genre piece uh, with ghosts and, um, and, and, and salvation through ghosts, if I can say. Mm. Um, but the French way is not the same way as the Asian way. So I had to find a, a middle ground. The end result was, um, she, she loved the end result. I maintained the physical aspect of her writing. So the French phrases I had look similar on paper when you put them side to side. To find the French words equivalent to the to the um to the cadence and the artistic way of saying things in Korean. Already French is a poetic language, but poetic in the Western way. And there's poetry in, in, in the Eastern way. I try to to make them match. That was quite a challenge. And and I also had a deadline of um <laughs> of a month to get it oh. done because there was going to be a reading. Um, but I was able to do it with a, with, with help, um, you know, because my French is Montreal, Quebec French, which does not translate to the artistic view that she had with her Korean, uh, poet, poetry. Oh, it was, um, it was quite the challenge, but we did it. How, how, how do you marry the, the 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 Quebec Montreal French some good joie uh, yes. with with uh, with the Korean how do you go about doing that? Um, I did it. I don't know, <laughs> but I I I did it. I just I jumped right in, mm. um, using the joie, and 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 joie has its own rhythm, and when I would call. Uh, and have Zoom meetings with Chin So, she would say it in Korean, and and I can almost hear the cadence in the Joao version of it, and then the words would flow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that was a lot of phone calls and sure Zoom meetings. <laughs> sure, but also, I mean, there's there's certainly something about a deadline yeah. to really motivate. Oh yes, getting something done. Oh yes. Yes, you know, I remember, you know, I wrote a solo play for eight years until I was like, if I don't get an opportunity to to, to perform this thing, it's never going to be done. And so I managed to get into a Fringe Festival and suddenly, oh, wait, now I can finish it. So, you know, these are deadlines are incredibly helpful. Yes, they are. Because if there wasn't a short deadline, it, I mean, I'd probably still be translating it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you'd be like, you know, at a certain point with the deadline, you have to go like, this is, okay, good enough has to be good enough. Yeah. You know? That's it. That's it. And, yeah. And luckily, she was happy with it. Um, and I think it was performed, had a public reading with it in French and English. And uh, the director, uh, Micheline Chevrier, she loved it. Mm. So, bravo, my French... My French pull through. <laughs> Perfect. Now, before I, I go back and start talking about uh, paying me this house of love, I yes. would be remiss if I did not ask you about Blue's Clues. <laughs> oh, yes. Lola. Hey, Lola. Because, and, and I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I, uh, you know, everybody, you know, at a, at a certain point in their life, there's a there's a number of people for whom Blue's Clues was very important. I remember uh, when uh, 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 Steve, original Steve, uh, made an appearance on TikTok and just said, "Hey, how are you? I've missed you." And the number of people they were like weeping because Steve was back and he was talking to them the way he used to talk to them. Um, Blue's Clues has a real effect on on, on kids. So, um, what has it been like uh, as Lola on on that show for you? It's been great. It's been great. You know, I think the last shoot we had was um, right before the pandemic hit, and that was season four. Mm. Um, there's supposed to be a season five. That's okay. I'm I'm not privy to that information yet. But 
So it's been a while since I've been Lola, but, you know, through streaming, through YouTube, uh, they have a, a Blues Clues and You on YouTube, and they even cartooned me. So Lola is ever-present, and I, I, I get these kids on social media, like for me, it's been years, literally years, pre-pandemic, that I have not been Lola, but they... For them, Lola is ever present. It's, it's the representation of their grandma. Mm. Just, you know, Lola, can can you let's let's bake a cake together? And this is probably <laughs> some, you know, six year six year old toddler who yeah. has no clue that I'm just an actor. <laughs> right. But I do answer. I do reply, um, and I'm very careful because I know, I know. That whenever I reply on behalf of Lola, it touches them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It touches these kids profoundly. The parents who grew up on Steve and Joe mm -hmm. now have their kids watching Josh and Lola. Yeah, it's it's a whole generational thing, and and I do, I am very careful on social media about yeah. how to present myself. Um, because I don't want to break the, their dreams. No, can't. No, and it's so it's so important. Have, have, do do kids? Do you ever find like you're out somewhere and there's some kids staring at you? Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Um, especially um, I usually wear my hair in a ponytail, but some days I I put a bun and I do wear glasses in real life. <laughs> And I see these kids just staring at me. The parents don't recognize me. No. But the kids just stop, their their mouths drop open and, and they're pointing at me. And of course the parents are like, Don't point at the lady. Don't write at the lady. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's adorable. It's right. adorable and you know, I have to watch my boundaries because sometimes they're so cute I just want to go and hug them. Of course. No. You you can't do that. I can't. I can't. I can't. It's funny how kids react to things. Um, yeah. Twice in my life, I played poker. Oh. For those who are who who might be listening who didn't grow up in Ontario, poker is a very famous character on Polka Dot Door and Polka Dot Shorts. Yes. Very beloved kids character on TV Ontario. Yes. I had the privilege of playing poker twice in my life. Once oh. at Ontario Place, oh. um, where we did little sketches and. Every day before each each of our little shows, we would go out in in uh, this this golf cart that had this thing in the back, and Pokeru would be in the back, and we would go out to sort of gather the kids over to the children's stage, and we would do a little sketch, and then there'd be a musical artist. <laughs> um, and so people would freak out. People would freak out. Adults would freak out. Children would freak out. Oh. Um, and years before that, the first time they ever tried to do poker, they didn't have like the golf cart. So they were like, we just send poker out to Children's Village and get them to oh. bring people back. Um, 45 minutes later, they were like, we should probably go find out what's happening. And poker was swarmed with love from children, oh. but could not move. Right. <laughs> the other time I was doing a stage, a stage show of a, of a poker show, poker was a guest of the bananas in pajamas. And, oh. and so oh. made like a guest appearance in the stage show. And I have never felt closer to a rock star than coming out on stage and feeling the energy of of a thousand or more children small children screaming and losing their minds yes it's yes so incredible yes it's it's um it's amazing that feeling of of kids looking up at you mm -hmm. and they're just in awe. Yeah. Yeah. And that moment when they grow up, they might forget that particular moment, but that feeling is, is, becomes part of them. I, I really do believe that. I really yeah. believe that, that like having an interaction with that, with a character, whether it's, it's Pokeru or it's Lola and have a moment of like, you know, you can't run over and hug them, but you can give them a smile. You can give them a yeah. wink, and they know what they just saw. They know yeah. they saw Lola, and they know they, they that she smiled. Right? They yeah. know that that was Lola, and so 
it's 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 pretty massive for the child to have this thing and maybe the parent you know it's a thing that was for them and not yes. something that necessarily was shared with their child right with the yes. parent right yeah it's so incredible to 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 be able to to share that with 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 a child and to give them that moment of like see it's it's your imagination your you matter you know yeah you are real i see you and you are worth it more yeah. than you ever can think I love you. Yeah. And they feel it. Absolutely they do. Absolutely they do. Um, we would have moments, you know, just, just with poker all or you just get a sh- a handshake sometimes and oh. people would like feel so uh uh connected and amazing just because of this this moment. Yeah. 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 So we go feel back it too. To, whoa, whoa, do we ever? I mean, my goodness. My goodness. Like yeah. to when you have that moment and and you know that that like uh, a a child has has had that experience that that wide-eyed innocent uh, magic moment because that's what it yeah. is it's magic for the child it's so yeah. incredible to to be part of that moment yeah oh yeah um as just as we sort of draw to a close i want to come back to pay me this house of love okay and i want to talk about um you know, as the, uh, the assistant director on this play, um, uh, coming into this play and then being there through the rehearsal process, um, did you have something going into this play that you were like, this is something I want to learn, something I want to experience, something I want to have happen? And how did that desire change over the course of, of the rehearsal process and into performance? Coming in... Coming in as the assistant director, I had no expectations because I know Mike Payette is the director. He leads the show. He shapes the show. Um, and I took my role as listen as much as you can. Sponge in what he wants from from the, from the actors, from from the crew. Sponge everything in take notes so that you know the days were because we are human the days where he might concentrate on something smaller I can keep alive the other pieces that he wanted to develop on so I'll just keep it alive while he gets his energy together and then when time comes he goes back to see what whatever piece that was and see that it it has been kept intact um, I found it to be rewarding. I found it to be challenging. I didn't sleep much because Mike, as a creator, as a director, and creating this, this, putting life to Chelsea Woolsey, Woolley's words, that's, that's a, that's big. That is a lot of things to do. Um, so I had to find balance for myself as well. Um, I, I got to admit, some days I was just sitting in the back, especially when we moved into the theater. I would sit all the way up in the back in the dark and just try to catch a breather um, so that I can you know, sit back down a few rows down to be behind Mike and just to listen to what he's telling everybody um, for notes and what have you. So was, it's, was there something you learned about about directing in this process? Um, learning about directing is what I learned is it is still a people relationship job. It is a job because when you come home at night, you gotta leave the job out the door because if not, it's gonna you're not gonna sleep well. So I learned more balance during this process as a director as an assistant director i need to stop when it's time to stop so that when it's time to start i am really there so i think it's such, basically that's, that's such an important thing just generally as an artist yeah. is like that being able to to stop yeah yeah and and the trust that mm-hmm. that everybody will deliver what they're supposed to deliver i mean the the set Ken did a marvelous job with the set, the sound effects, the light, 
the whole team was A1 plus, plus, plus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you you get a bunch a bunch of professionals together already. My job as the assistant director was easier. Right. Uh, because Mike was able to gather all these people together. Oh, he was able to um, explain what he wanted. They delivered. I just made sure that it's maintained. Mm. And if he wanted to change it, then I'll t- change my notes. Fine. Now, is directing something that that you see as something that you want to keep doing, or is writing and performing the the primary thing, or or are you just like let's do it all, let's do it all? Oh, Phil, let's do it all. <laughs> let's do it all. I'm gonna be 62 years old. I'm still standing up, and if I can do it all, I want to do it all. So, yeah, let's do it all. Absolutely. I think that's as good a spot as any to stop. Let's do it all. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Phil. Always a pleasure. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.